listeners, we are Lib Voices. Hear from librarians of color what speaks to the fullness of their careers, including successes and challenges. How do they do it? Join us to find out more about their Lib Voices. Welcome to episode six. Today we have an interview with Raymond Pun. Dr. Raymond Pun is an academic school librarian in the Bay Area, California. He has been in the profession for over 15 years. He is an active member of ALA and the Ethnic Affiliates, currently a member of the ALA Policy Corps, and has published and presented extensively in the field. He holds a doctorate in educational leadership, MA in East Asian Studies, and an MLS in Library Science. What drew you to librarianship? So yeah, that's a really great question. And thank you all for giving me the opportunity to share my experiences and thoughts on this podcast. I initially thought I would be a, a lawyer, like many first-generation college students born from immigrant families and thinking we have to you know, make some sort of career that would advance our um, you know, socioeconomics and something that would quote unquote bring some sort of value or prestige, especially, you know, if, if you identify um, particularly as Asian American, that's sort of like something that comes through. If, if it's not MD, it's JD, it's one or the other, uh, or maybe accountant. But besides the point, I ended up um, realizing I didn't want to be in debt. And I was really terrible at the LSAT, which is the, the admissions exam you have to take to go to apply to law school. And so I ended up switching over to thinking about getting a doctorate in history because I was really fascinated with um, the courses I was taking, but also like it made me think, oh, I think the areas could really expand um, the areas within what, what I was interested in. So I was particularly interested in like a couple of regional areas. So one would be a Middle Eastern history and the other one would be like looking at the Asian diaspora in Latin America. And then like that also didn't sort of work out because I think I, had, I felt like looking at the PhD programs, it would be like a commitment of five years. And I thought, oh gosh, this is, this is a lot. Like I was uh, honestly burnt out like after undergrad majoring in history. But at that time, I was also interning at the New York Public Library, getting uh, credit for uh, paging work, being a library intern, unpaid intern at the Doro Jewish Division, where I started. And I had a connection there, so somebody knew I wanted to intern there. And it was really fascinating because I ended up learning how to like preserve oral history from Holocaust survivors or like understanding what, um, you know, the experiences of Jewish American life, uh, particularly anti-Semitic um, uh, periods, right, in America. And so it made me understand more about like human rights issues. And so as I became more involved interning, I thought, oh, this will be very interesting. And of course, ironically, the librarians um, had wanted me to think about other areas too, besides being a librarian. I think they, they thought I had potential in exploring being a you know, PhD program in history and then being a, a faculty, things like that. But they also like really um, admired that I had that interest in human rights. And what really sunk in was when I went to a conference um, when I was a, a library assistant, I was promoted internally eventually into another de department. And I went to this conference at Columbia University 
and it was focusing on um, women's history and activism and like archives. And then it stood out to me, this was back in 2010, where the presenters really focused on archival work as being a form of activism, right? You're documenting the work of um, people who are protesting, who are challenging the status quo. And that made me think more about the, the kind of work I was doing and how it relates to human rights. And then so eventually I became more involved in that sense. I thought I would focus more on archival work, but then it eventually transitioned to uh, librarianship, which I think we, we you know, both, both professions share really similar values and areas of work. And so I, I was more engaged in that uh, work because of the interest early on uh, in human rights. So uh, I think that sort of drew me into librarianship and then the public service work came through later. That's amazing, right? Yeah. I was undergrad um, history major too. So. Oh, really? And the LSAT as well was a deterrent for me <laughs> to go into law school. So I, I appreciate that story because <laughs> I was like, oh, it reminds me of myself a little bit. <laughs> oh. <laughs> uh, I guess many of people have dashed dreams of <laughs> law school. <huh? laughs> um, so our next question, as a um, Black, Indigenous, and or person of color, what do you view as critical to the success of the field? Yeah, that's a really interesting question because I think it is so much to, there's so much to unpack there, right? I think first we know that um, the, 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 the notion of success is very vague and subjective, very individual and in some ways collective. And when I think, of, when I think about that question that you asked, it's immediately I think of collaboration, mentorship, you know, the, the really um, generic responses, right, that, that, that people might think of. But I also think of like other, other areas um, and what does that mean? And that usually means that, you know, our work is really relationship centered. Um, so no matter what type of position we're in, what we're doing, it's, it's all about like connecting with others and ensuring that we have support or we can support and uplift each other. Um, and that way it's sort of, that way I see it, it's really critical to success. Um, like for myself, I feel like I'm on a journey trying to sort out what I want to do, what needs to be done and how to align them, right? There's just so many, um, I'm still figuring that out. There's so many um, elements to it. And I often refer back to um, the general counsel at New York Public Library when I was there, uh, uh, my, my former colleague, uh, Michelle Coleman-Mays, who said really uh, important things like when it comes to mentorship, just beyond having a mentor, it's really, um, as she puts it, strategic mentoring and having people to teach you the informal rules of the road. So really thinking about our own personal brand of, or uh, personal board of directors, right? Like more than one mentor, that's critical to our success. You know, mentors who might identify as um, BIPOC, mentors who may be white, may, mentors who might work in public, academic, or school libraries, or, or within organizations like ALA or a publisher. I have mentors throughout these different areas, and that has given me a lot of perspective. Now, I think another point that um, Michelle made is that to, for our own success, right, we have to think about our identity a lot. And when we're thinking about where we're working, the question rather is, how much of your identity can you keep? So when you're selecting a place of employment, is it important to check out its culture and values and seriously assess whether it is a place where you can at least be authentic? 
And you know, I, I, I saw this when she had shared this with uh, during an interview, and I thought, wow, this is really interesting. How do we like be authentic? Is that something that you know helps us feel to be successful? And I think one other area to think about is you should always have conversations with people about certain places. And, and I saw this recently on a Twitter post by uh, Dr. Isler from Dartmouth, you know, really talking about um, the institutions that don't have um, people of color, um, black indigenous people working them. And it's because there's a lot of conversations. People talk, we talk, we guide each other, we support each other. And she, she says here, like we exercise agency over our decisions. And I can tell you with certainty that some of us are on the permanent no list, like no go. So what does that mean? Well, I think um, when I read it, I see it like we have conversations, we um, share with each other if these places are uh, tricky, right, to work in because of certain, um, uh, certain factors that, that might sway us otherwise. So I think the work is very enduring, right? To, to be successful, it's, it's an ongoing process. You know, our vision of success may change over time. And I think that's so important to recognize. You know, we may have different values when we first started, then mid-career, and then like in between our journeys. So important to recognize that success over time. Thank you. So, so many good nuggets of wisdom in that advice, even for myself. So, I, I love the point that you make about uh, authentic, authenticity and bringing that to the table um, as a component of success. That makes a lot of sense, you know, when you when you explain it. And like, if you were to try to define what is success, like I don't I don't think a lot of people would maybe think of that as part of it. But um, I'm, you know, glad that you brought that up as, as something to think about. I, I feel in how we succeed in, in this field and, and push forward. Yeah, definitely. So thank you. So I think it goes perfectly into our next question, which is, how do you promote equitable practices through your work in the library, archives, et cetera? Yeah, thanks for that question. I, I feel like when I first started, um, dating myself 15 years ago, I never really thought about these um, important, important issues uh, that, that we're, we're all really grappling with. Um, and I think mostly because from New York City and I, I, I saw it differently um, in terms of what equity, diversity and inclusion meant back then compared to now. And so it was interesting um, over time that I became more involved in that kind of work because I saw the need. And I think part of it is because I, I experienced, you know, being possibly the only one or seeing things in a different way that maybe um, encountering um, what others might not see. And so for my current work as a uh, solo school slash academic librarian in a really interesting university school and school, we um, really focus a lot on equity in our um, framework and pedagogy and so forth. So one of the things I really do is um, I teach a lot of um, information literacy workshops online. And one concept I really like to infuse is this whole idea of information privilege, which is um, really connected to that notion of white privilege that, and this is a, uh, there's usually like a, like a graphic that comes along with it from uh, one of the librarians at Duke University who created that um, notion that, you know, we come in with certain sets of privileges and values 
And as a result, you know, we have to think about our, our experiences or those who might not have access to information and what that means. And it's, just, it's aligning with the idea of white privilege, which is um, uh, coined back in a while back in an essay by Peggy McIntosh. But the idea is that we have to think about um, what are our own sets of privileges and how do we think about matters such as open access materials. So I work closely with faculty and ensuring that we get materials that are open access for our uh, students, our graduate students in education, that they don't have to purchase textbooks or any kind of um, course reading that requires some sort of um, purchasing that you know, we can mitigate. And so when I teach with uh, the students, I also show them like the publishing industry because all of them are um, teachers or preparing to be teachers, whether they're gonna be in special education or in um, Spanish language or even in world history or mathematics. Um, the whole idea of diversity in children's books, even starting out there. Um, this was a graphic that came from um, Dr. Sarah Park Dolan and David Hoyk. Uh, who created this really interesting graphic that showed, you know, the percentages of books depicting characters from diverse backgrounds. And then we know for a fact that it's really, really hor horrific just to see that, you know, 50% is white, 27% are animals and other, and then less than like 10% African American, Black, 7% Asian Pacific American, 5% Latinx, 1% American Indian First Nations. These are, that's the publishing industry trend for 2018 for children's books. Um, and it's a free graphic, you could see it and Google it online, diversity in children's books 2018. And why do I do this with the students who may be going into other areas? Well, it's, it's a realization for them to understand that where they're entering, there's a lot of systemic oppression and racism. And what they, they can do is think about ways to dismantle these efforts and it's ongoing, right? I, I think it's, um, it's challenging, but I think it helps them see what's, what's really going on in the classroom. You know, we talk a lot about, um, especially right now, um, you know, like uh, defunding police and then like reallocating those funds in social services or in education. But we also need to keep in mind of how education system in America can also be challenging and oppressive. And especially for me as the librarian, to show and connect with students about these issues is timely and, and really uh, important. So I'll, I'll sort of like stop right here and see what, what you both or all of you have to say about this. I never heard of the, um, heard of the phrase information privilege um, until you said that and I wrote it down and I'll be doing my research about it because it's, it's an interesting concept. And, you know, cause we always talk about information literacy, uh, I'm a medical librarian, so we talk about um, health literacy, so that type of thing. Um, so thank you for that information about information privilege. So I, I haven't heard about information privilege either. And um, so I definitely will also be looking into this. <laughs> and I'm, I'm already uh, writing a, a paper on uh, information poverty and sovereignty. And so I think that this, and, and access as well. And so I'm, I'm gonna definitely look into this information privilege and maybe uh, use that. Um, but also I, I love the point that you make about looking at the educational system and the way that we're looking at other systems um, uh, and that we need to interrogate these, uh, you know, educational systems as well in terms of uh, hegemony and the things that uh, students are learning or not learning in their schools. 
Yeah, definitely. I, I think this is something that requires a lot of uh, reflection and like dialogue. And it's, it's not easy for people to um, absorb, particularly because it, it feels like it invalidates some of their own, um, some of their own ex existence or experiences. And so it, 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 it may feel that way, but it's more like understanding um, from different perspectives. And I have to say it's, um, it's an ongoing struggle actually to, uh, going back to your original question about uh, creating sort of like this uh, in in equitable uh, practice in the library. You know, at, at times, I'll be honest, I feel discouraged because there's just so much bureaucratic fatigue and what I mean by that is there's like excessive, complicated administrative procedures. If we wanted to change something, you know, we have to go through some process, paperwork, bylaws, policies, et cetera, to really reform and change the systems, right, that are inherently exclusionary or quote unquote neutral or even problematic to BIPOC and other marginalized communities' experiences. And so it, it, it's sort of like um, the, the, the examples I gave were immediate work that I can do, I can change, I can hopefully encourage um, the students and faculty to think about. But in terms of like behind the scenes, that's, that's a lot of the stuff that I have been doing, but I've seen a lot of people are doing. It takes a lot of energy, mental, emotional strength to go through it. And sometimes, you know, you know I, I, I do things like silently, right? Behind the scenes, like maybe I might be, um, uh, referring to other people for like keynotes or like other uh, trying to reform the system, um, in, you know, really including EDI values, um, really anti-racist pedagogy and creating opportunities for those who have been largely neglect neglected and ignored. Oh, that's amazing. Okay, so this next question, it's two parts of it. So you're an active member of ALA and it's of ethnic affiliates. How did this process come about? What advice do you have for others that want to be involved but aren't sure where to start? Yeah, I, I, it, that's, uh, thanks for that question. It, it happened over time uh, for me. Um, I think I began to realize the importance of allyship and engagement. Uh, between the different associations. So uh, for those who are listening and are not familiar, there are um, five main ethnic affiliates or we really designate them as national associations of librarians of color. So they're the American Indian Library Association, the Chinese American Libra Librarians Association, the Asian slash Pacific American Librarians Association, the Black Caucus of ALA and Reforma which uh, supports um, the Hispanic speaking and Latino community, um, National Association to promote library information services to Latinos and Spanish speaking. And so these uh, five groups, they are um, important groups, um, they're independent from ALA. And from my own experiences, I've been involved in different levels within the groups. I've seen that, you know, like I was saying, a lot of connections, um, I see that it's, really important to join if you uh, would like to join. Uh, as for myself, I see myself as an ally. Joining if you can, it's de definitely a privilege that you know, I m myself can afford to do so. And you know, the advice is to really to explore and make connections. Um, you know, emailing people who are in such groups and asking questions and joining a committee and really being engaged. There's a lot of webinars being offered for those groups 
if you're part of a part of them. And if you're a student, take advantage of that. There's also student rates, and I think for some it's free. Um, and I didn't when I was a student. And I think that's something that I would say I would have done back when I started, joining early and getting involved. Um, so seeing what folks are doing and the small projects can lead to some really amazing type of work. And of course, there's a lot of activities going on and, and you could see how um, the connections can really, um, really support uh, what you're doing, what you're interested in and giving you new connections. Um, because I think it's something that um, people might not realize. They feel like, oh, they might have to join ALA or and then join these groups. No, you can join them like independently and then sort of work your way in, and make connections there, have mentors, mentees, and you know, a community of practice sort of thing. Um, I think, yeah, I think it's something I, I, I wish I would start it earlier, but I didn't until later because I felt like, oh, I didn't know if I should be paying an association so that I would do more work, which at the time, I think that was, my, that was the logic that prevented me from joining because I thought, oh, I didn't wanna do more work, but actually, it, it, it's you're, you're paying for um, you know really supporting these organizations that are promoting solidarity and support for each other and for their respective communities that's a great way to look at it I hadn't thought of that before but you know I mean it's a good spin <laughs> for those who are thinking about you know this is extra work like that's a different way definitely um, different way of looking at it and seeing how your what you do and what you contribute is really just for the betterment of the whole um, discipline and profession. Yeah, definitely. And I think I know some, some of the organizations are looking into like sponsorships, like having someone sponsor you if you're a student or if you're new, new early career professionals, there's definitely somebody who would be um, probably looking into that and like supporting, you know, the membership for that, right? And yeah, and there's like all kinds of student discounts and things like that. So I know when I was a student and also as a paraprofessional, I always took advantage of those lower rates and fees and all of that kind of thing, and scholarships and everything, <laughs> anything I could. <laughs> yeah, definitely take advantage of those joint memberships. I know I did when I was getting my master's with doing a, our state association and uh nala it was a combination mm. because being a student you know you don't <laughs> the struggle was real when i was getting my master so yeah. it's real <laughs> <laughs> okay so uh congratulations on graduating this year so can you please share with us why you decided to pursue your EDD? And if you feel comfortable, please tell us about your dissertation. Thank you. I, um, I think, yeah, it's, it's been such a whirlwind because I um, didn't, like many of us here, all of us here, didn't expect to be um, quarantining, like living under a pandemic and then an economic depression and then all this other tragic news happening. So during the, the whole experience, I um, had, had, had thought a lot about um, what my research is about and, and how it connects actually quite well to a lot of the issues that, that we're seeing today. So I 
first I wanted to answer your first part of the question. So why did I pursue an education doctorate? Well, this is interesting. Like I, I go back to uh, referring back to our, our first conversation, that question. I thought about a doctorate in history and then like it changed over time. And so I went with the education doctorate because I thought I wanted to know more about um, the education field, like, like especially the theoretical framework, which I ended up learning more, like the critical race theory, critical relevant pedagogy, um, deficit thinking model, all these things that I heard a lot in critical librarianship, but I didn't you know, have a good grasp of what they were until I really started um, studying and looking into it in my um, doctorate program. And I wanted specifically to focus on education. And this was a hybrid program that allowed me to be like flexible and, and um, take classes online, but also like have some residency in person. And it allowed me to really learn from each other as a community of practice. So I pursued that because it was an, an education degree focused on um, practical and application elements, but also really like good on like theory that I didn't, didn't have a good grasp on. And as a result, I was able to um, you know, apply that kind of work to what I'm doing now in the graduate school of education, because I'm training, I'm a teacher educator, I'm training other teachers to think about um, the importance of um, equity, educational pedagogy, critical race theory, um, these really uh, important matters. And so my dissertation was looking at um, the digital divide, digital exclusion. And this was before the pandemic happened. So it was really looking at tracing the narratives of people of color um, who experienced digital exclusion in an area in California and how they um, navigate the spaces using their public libraries. Like what were some of the barriers? What were their perceptions? What were their purposes in using um, the public libraries resources, technology resources to support their, um, their needs? But also like how do they uh, navigate the digital exclusion spaces. And so I found out a lot of interesting things. I did an in-depth interview applying critical race theory to hear their voices about what their purposes are and their, their daily experiences using the public library. And I found out like a few interesting things. Um, one is that there are like two types of main constraints and this is before the pandemic. So the constraints are really about how it limits their access, right? Like how, how, do, how do these constraints limit their access? Well, first there's um, the institutional constraints. We have public libraries who are opened maybe nine to five, right? And just have computer terminals, just like any, any, typical, uh, any typical library we see across the country. However, we might see some challenges here, meaning that some of the computers are not in, um, are not in different signages. They're, most, they're in English only, or that there are viruses in the computers and it's complete neglect, right? And using the computers or the hours don't work. Maybe some of the, some of the um, patrons have to work during the day and have, are free at night and then the libraries are closed. So there's a lot of institutional constraints happening that I think, uh, or even um, that they may not hire uh, someone who could speak uh, another language or, who, or, the, or the patrons might feel comfortable interacting with a library staff that they share similar background. So these institutional constraints are happening, right? And what happens is that these can be changed uh, compared to the other constraint, which is circumstantial. So a lot of the, the people I spoke to told me that, oh, you know, I live really far away from the library or have a day job or I can't go to the library um, X, Y, Z. So th there's a lot of circumstantial constraints that, that we can't change. You know, these are the patrons constraints. But institutionally, we see things that are happening and it's like reoccurring over and over. And it makes me think, well, I think 
you, we can certainly change uh, some of the policies, the practices, because it comes down to the hours that people have access to the internet through the computers. So this was all pre before the uh, pandemic. And then like everything changed. It's sort of like interesting because now I'm following up with some of the patrons again, and I'm trying to see you know, how they're doing during the pandemic. And then I was able to uh, follow up with two of them. And two of them had told me that, you know, it's been really hard. The libraries are still closed, but then they're able to go to um, their parking lot and use the, use the Wi-Fi and use their computers. And another couldn't, couldn't go to the library at all because they didn't have any of the technology. So we communicated on the phone and then they were able to share that information with me. And I hear that, you know, libraries play a really important role in bridging the digital divide. We see this in so much of the literature, so much of the campaign and then the advocacy work. And it's true, they are doing it, but we have to be mindful of the institutional constraints that are still happening within the libraries that sort of create um, barriers for people, especially people of color in using the resources. So, you know, that this whole dissertation research has sort of like uncovered a lot of interesting perspectives um, that we need to consider. But also I feel like, oh no, now with the pandemic, things might change. But at the same time, I'm, I'm, I'm really, really um, glad I did this research. It started out like three years ago, three or four years ago when I did this program, this grant funded program with the public library. And then we had student workers to go to the public libraries to do technology training workshops in Spanish, Hmong, Arabic, or um, Punjabi languages, right? Because those were the communities and then they were doing that. And the public libraries were not doing that at the time. So we ended up, you know, really supporting the communities that way. And um, it made me think, you know, this could be a really interesting dissertation project looking at how people use the public libraries um, to navigate, you know, the, the digital spaces and gain access. That was very good information. Uh, it just reminds me of the Twitter conversations about the inter internet access and how it should be a utility for everyone to have access to it and having that dialogue. I don't know if that will ever be a possibility. And then, you know, the public library physically being closed, what does that mean for a lot of people? You know, and it's a safety issue for staff, so it had to be closed. But Right. A, lot of, a lot of things to a lot of things to consider you know. right also i think when you said you know the public libraries weren't weren't feeling that need and and so you had to go outside of that is interesting because i think um we think of public libraries as kind of providing everything <laughs> like they're they are all often in the gap for like for all kinds of things so um you know when you when you were speaking about that, it's like, you know, sometimes the public library is not able to, to fulfill everything as well. And sometimes you do have to find a different way to meet the community's needs um, or different ways to do that outside of the public library and maybe collaborating or, or whatever that is. But um, I think it's, it's good to kind of remind ourselves that um, we have to kind of think outside of the box sometimes. Yeah, totally. And I think the argument that I keep hearing is that we don't have funding. There's no funding for this. I think it's, it's certainly true, right? Funding and advocacy, they, they work well and ensuring that there are resources allocated for libraries to do this. But I think it also comes down to value and priorities, right? What are your priorities and values to the community? If you feel that you should have a Spanish-speaking librarian because there's a large Spanish-speaking community 
that's a priority. You know, you, you, it's sort of a, a disservice to your community to say, you know, we just don't have funding and, you know, and we're just going to leave things as is until we get funding, which is never, you know, we're always, always um, needing funding for all types of purposes. And so that's what I ended up finding really interesting. And the public libraries, you know, they are doing their best, but of course, um, just like all the other spaces we're seeing, there is uh, libraries in general uh, can be systematically oppressive. A uh, lot of issues here that um, I know it could be a whole podcast in itself to go through, but it's certainly, um, you know, sure one that can. I, yeah, can, can <laughs> just say there. Uh, yeah. I, I, it's just so interesting like like you said it's our priorities and one of the, my gripes with coming into this profession is the lack of just it is what it is not even the, it, this complacency of we well, don't have the funding so that just leave it there like no 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 let's rally up everybody and push till we get what we need like no it seems like just where what it is is okay and i don't well i know what it is but i'm not gonna speak further on what that is um <laughs> so i won't hurt people's feelings as i continue to talk but it's just it's very interesting it's interesting i'll say that <laughs> yes i just will agree <laughs> like, I just, it's like i want to hurt people's feelings so. <laughs> it's, it's certainly true. I, I think even when there is funding, it, it's still very, very, very um, tricky space to navigate. Mm -hmm. Like I was actually hesitant about, well, not hesitant. I wasn't sure if, if we had time to share this since, since um, I was thinking about this example. And then I was like, oh, and thinking, make a fight or flight decision. I'm like, no, I'm going to share this example because I feel like it, 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 it maybe it might be interesting to explore with mm -hmm. all of you. Yeah. So um, even if there is funding, let's say, and uh, you know, from my own experience, a while back, I was uh, co-chair of the Library Diversity Committee at, at an institution, and we wanted a, a web page to represent you know, the work we do in the Library Diversity Committee. We do a lot of exhibits, programming, you know, book collection, engagement, you know, and somehow there's so much resistance in having a Library Diversity Committee web page by the um, web committee. Right. And so what was interesting was that we ended up creating, you know, a lib guide, you know, like a resource sharing page because we thought, well, we're not going to ever, they're never going to create a uh, web page for us. So we'll just use a lib guide as a resource sharing page. And I never seen so much um, anger from people from the web committee that I will say um, predominantly were white people very upset at having this web page, um, a library guide without their consent and saying we were you know, not following the norms or orders, the branding rules, and, and telling us to take it down. But it was a resource page. We connected to a lot of important resources and what we do and who we were. And then so eventually we had a huge um, discussion about it back and forth. And finally we came to terms, but I have to say it was very, very um, draining and very unnecessary. And, and even when there is resource, people see it as a change right, as a, a disruption to their status quo, as a disruption to their perspective that invalidates their experiences. And that's, that's I think, really um, problematic because then they're not seeing, you know, what um, BIPOC communities or marginalized experiences the folks are seeing. Um, and it's, it's challenging and it's ongoing. So sort of leave it at there. Yeah, 
I've seen that too. Like you, like this was approved or funding was there and there's still this pushback. There's still this resistance. And it's like, I, I just don't, under, I don't, maybe it's just my, my perspective, but like life is about changing. Life is about evolving. If you don't change, if you don't evolve, you won't be better for it. We won't be better for it. And you'll continue to leave people behind. Isn't that important to you as a space, as a library, as a profession? So if it's not, I think we have a problem, <laughs> in my opinion. But, you know, it's just very interesting. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I think... Unfortunately, there's no, you know, easy way around this. And I, and I think this is, you know, obviously this is part of what our struggle is and also part of why we're, we're even doing this podcast, but it is about getting our voices out there and these, you know, alternative um, perspectives that, um, you know, are otherwise being ignored, you know, in our, in our jobs, in our communities. And so, um despite, you know, the fact that it, it is a difficult, you know, and arduous struggle, uh, we can't give up, you know. And it's easier said than done, obviously. <laughs> um, but, you know, hopefully, you know, what we're doing here is, is, is helpful in, in kind of strengthening people's resolve in what we're trying to do in our organizations. Uh, whether it's public or academic or whatever, because um, it's so necessary and needed. And um, I think we're just, you almost kind of expect that you're going to run into that, right, at every turn, unfortunately. Mm. But, yeah. I don't know if I have enough encouraging words, but <laughs> it is a, it's a difficult thing. It's, it is. And like you said, draining. And so we have to also, you know, take care of ourselves and, and try to, you know, this is why self-care is so important also. Was, and we're kind of going off the rails here, but um, still all these things are important in order to keep going and, and, and to, to try to make the progress that we need and um, is necessary. Mm -hmm. I was just about to say that self-care is important and being a part of those ethnic affiliates, you know, affiliations that we talked about is important too, to remind you of, you know, of your importance and that you do deserve to be there, even though you may feel that backlash. And, you know, if it gets too much, we'll have a way to help you out or get you out. One of the, one of the two. <laughs> help you out and get you out right. <laughs> you know if it's, it's too abusive because we don't i don't want anyone to subscribe to abuse you know but no no and if you have to get out then you have to get out you know you have to get out There's and we'll help you get out that is true all righty do you have any more questions comments concerns anything you want to add before we wrap this up no, I think um, this this was really helpful for me to share it. And like, as I'm sharing my thoughts, I'm, I'm hearing the responses and, and it's giving me some other ideas to think about, but I appreciate this opportunity to speak with all of you. Well, thank oh, you. We appreciate you and, and the things that you've brought up. And there's a, I wrote a lot, lot of stuff down. 
yeah, a lot of food for thought and things to consider as we, you know, move forward in this work. Yeah, certainly. You're, you're totally welcome. Aww, thank you, Ray. You're amazing. <laughs> <laughs> We hope you learn more about Raymond Pun. We'd like to share a quote with you before we sign off. Change will not come if we wait for some other person or if we wait for some other time. We are the ones we've been waiting for. We are the change that we seek. President Barack Obama. Remember to keep walking in your lib voices and please follow us on all of our social media pages. <laughs>